0: you don't understand i could have had class i could have been a contender i could have been somebody
1: Somebody. so he's almost like having a second captain in the (laughs) team
2: second captain first captain whatever Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the final episode of the current series of Second Captain Saturday. Yes, you heard that right. It's the last one of the series. I know this is difficult news to take so early in your weekend, but we just need all of our previous guests to get on with their lives now at this point. And how are they supposed to do that when they still don't know exactly where they finished in our 2019 Greatest Non Sportsperson Sportsperson competition? They need closure. Murph Ken, how are you? Good. Hey, how are you? How are you? You will know quite a lot about our final guest this summer. He's been shortlisted for the Booker Prize on no less than three separate occasions. He won the International Dublin Literary Prize for the Master at the Costa Book Award for Brooklyn, which itself was made into an Oscar-nominated movie. In short, he is one of the great Irish writers. But did you know that Colm Tobin was once asked to assure the physical safety of Eamon Dunphy at a major (laughs) football tournament? Or that he travelled to Argentina in the wake of a police raid on Diego Maradona's Buenos Aires apartment to profile the most famous and controversial sports person in the world? That that is the kind of stuff that's going to give him a shot at the title today. All of that coming up. You may also have heard about the bit of controversy that Colm found himself in recently. This came across your, your guys' radar, Yeah, yeah. Not quite Maradona-level scandal, it should probably be said. It was a verbal broadside, as <laughs> I recall. There verbal broadside's going every which way. <laughs> he did ruffle a few feathers when he revealed during a and a with The Guardian that he is very much not a fan of what he called spy novels, thrillers, or any genre fiction books. <laughs> oh, he caught some flack for this, I'll tell you. Accused of snobbery, intellectual arrogance. Marion Keys tweeted... Says the lad who wrote a Maeve Binchy pastiche and managed to persuade people it was literary fiction. <laughs> it's in reference to Brooklyn, apparently. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, if Collins ready to answer questions on this sorry saga, we will ask him a you few. Know, if we should wait <laughs> till after the after the watershed yeah, watershed. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit, bit before that now, Murph, so we'll have to truck on with it. But we all know what he's really here for, Murph. With only one guest to go, can you please give us a rundown of who is sitting where on our leaderboard? It is time to put these people out of their misery for crying out loud. <laughs>
0: I could have been a contender, I could have been somebody.
3: Okay, leading the way at the moment in our hunt for Ireland's greatest non-sportsperson, sportsperson, is Peter Hayne on 84 points, who as a teenager managed to convince large swathes of the world to boycott apartheid South Africa. Senator George Mitchell may have saved our country, but that still was only good enough for 81 points for Swisher's younger brother. <laughs> John Simpson was a mean cricketer in his day, enough for 80 not out. And Roisin Conaty threw a double top during sports relief, which it turns out is worth 76 points. Useful to know for future reference. Yep, yep. Katrina Crowe loved Jerlock Nan, and that love is worth 76. 75 of your finest Irish points One Tala hockey legend Has officially changed his name To Emmett 73 points Kerwin After his appearance On this show And bringing up the rear Is the raging bull Of the Bogside, side Eamon McCann On 72 points That's the lie of the land As we move towards This morning's Thrilling denouement
2: Indeed Well you've got around 50 minutes 55 minutes To get in touch with us Before the end of this series So if you've written out A comment And you've maybe Got your finger hovering Over the tweet button You're just not quite sure Just go for it at just, go for just go for it, it Or text We'll front. ignore it If it's terrible Yeah yeah, 51551 <laughs> is the number to text. We'll chat about the All-Ireland Final before we round out the show this morning. Coming up next, it is Colm Tobin on Second Captain Saturday. I'm
4: losing willow. My hands are soft as cotton gloves Machine with the strength Uh. of all Can't
2: Sounds like it could be from any era, but it just happens to be brilliant music coming out of Ireland right now. The beautiful, powerful cabin voice of Lisa O'Neill there with a stunning song called Rock the Machine from her latest album, Heard a Long Gone Song. It is our final episode of the current series of Second Captain Saturday, which means only one man can overhaul Lord Peter Hayne and become our greatest non sports person sports person of 2019, and that man is the great Column Tobin. Colum, you're welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Are you confident about your chances here today? Ah, uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm absolutely sure. <laughs> a huge success It's in the bag It's in, it's the, in the bag Well really Forget about number one spot For the time being I think you should focus On taking down Katrina Crow, Who I believe is a good Friend of yours Where is, Where's Katrina On this list She's on 75 points I okay. think she's fifth On 75 one points One of our most popular Ever guests Yes it should be Now people may not be aware Of the sporting themes In your writing <laughs> <laughs> You're already laughing But they're there uh, Most notably I think Back in September 1991 You wrote a piece For Esquire magazine Called The Shame of Argentina what was this about? Um,
5: I went to Argentina at that time to write the story of Maradona, who had been uh, he, he had been up on a, a drugs charge, and um, obviously it was going to be impossible to find him. I had no contacts whatsoever in the sporting world in Argentina, and I had very little time. And obviously it was before mobile phones, so just, you know you were in your hotel room starting from scratch. So. Um, What I was interested in was um, how isolated he had become within the sporting world of Argentina. How, when I went to talk to the equivalent of the FAI people, they viewed him in a very strange way, not as someone they looked up to or respected or spent a great deal of social time with. And words started to come in, the word negrito, meaning a little black guy. And that he was from what they call a Villa Miseria, meaning, I suppose, a sort of boondocks, a sort of place that no one would go to. And I remember asking one of them one day, have you ever been where he's from? And the guy looked at me like I was insane. And it was yeah. sort of like it was someone like from Fox Rock talking, you know, like, <laughs> what do you mean I would go there? So, I mean, I went there and it was it was pretty far out from Buenos Aires. Fiorito, it was, um, I believe is the name of it. Yes, the, yeah, the place the was Fiorito. Place, yeah. And it was... Um, it was just rundown. It was, a, it, was an or, it was an ordinary, very small house, and there were, you know, a lot of dusty lanes and unpaved roads nearby, and that was that was where he was from. That the other issue was that Argentina itself had been going through a period of great shame. That, in, a, in other words, um, after the Falklands War, the generals were put on trial in Buenos Aires, and I attended that trial as a correspondent, and that trial showed that um, at least 10,000 people, possibly more, were picked mm-hmm. up off the streets and simply disappeared. Many of their bodies were thrown into the ocean. And um, the society pretended that hadn't happened. So, so that I just threw in a question each time I spoke to a footballer or an executive from the, um, from the Football Association, what do you think about the disappeared? And they all say, well, I don't know, that's got nothing to do with me. I mean, why, why are you asking me that? And it you know, became again a sort of mantra. And so um, there was also the whole question of um, Maradona being so famous and being, you know, being in the European clubs with his entourage and what that entourage actually looked like. And there was a, people were talking about his wedding as the most vulgar event that had ever taken place in the entire history of Argentina. <laughs> I mean, people were talking about him in that sort of way. I think a thousand people were invited. Yeah, yeah. Hefty enough bail for uh, that, I'm sure. It was, but he, I think he had, you know, he had a lot of money at that time the issue for me of course was that i didn't know anything about the football and you know i would taken on the job with escrow and they just you know the thing that they were interested in was, did i speak spanish yes did i know argentina yes could i write quickly yes but they never bothered to ask me do you know anything <laughs> about football because i would have said no and they would have said: well you're out you know <laughs> so they just presumed that every guy of my age um, knew something about football, which I thought was funny because I didn't. Yeah. And so I had to sort of disguise that and write a sort of social piece about the society. The interesting thing was that there was, that, that there was a Svengali in the situation who was a guy called Jorge Sieterspieler. And he was—he had been the manager and the sort of the, the sort of creator of the myth of Maradona. But he, but he also um, invented Carlos Menem, who became the president of Argentina, bringing him from a really remote region into the very centre of power in Argentina. And uh, he, of course, wouldn't see me. So I began to just make clear to him that I wasn't taking that. And so I eventually, I I eventually met him, which was sort of a fascinating experience because he was someone who understood something about power and about management of. Power and holding and wielding of power. So it was interesting to see him, and it was interesting that he had moved into the political realm as well. So that it it made my piece, a, a sort of piece about that using sport to tell you something about a
2: society. Yeah, which is fascinating. It's often what the best writing about sport is is about. The time of the career. Maradon had been done for uh, drugs. The uh, drugs situation in Italy essentially almost hounded out of Italy at that stage. He was back in Buenos Aires. You say he was enjoying the the lifestyle of samba e caramba. <laughs> Somebody used the phrase samba e caramba, which I thought was true <laughs> right. So he was having a good time by you know by his own standards back then. But interestingly, he he seemed to be enjoying the support of his hometown when he was kicked out of Italy, but. That turned by the time you had gotten there, there was this drugs bust while he was back home and for whatever reason I mean you're right at the time now he had suddenly joined the list of people whom Argentinians blame for the terrible despair that overwhelms their country
5: Yeah there's a sort of great melancholy in those years especially because um, they, they, they sort of realised what the Falklands War had looked like to the rest of the world what the disappearances had looked like and now here was Maradona who you know instead of being a sporting hero I mean, people talked about Pele for example people raised him as an example look at the dignity of that man look at how he comported himself look at look at you know how respectable he is compared to this guy who's you know a from the boondocks but b is now behaving like a sort of an animal in the city and uh, they 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 care enormously about what the rest of the world thinks of them i suppose like any uh, any you know country without great power like ourselves really yeah yeah, they kept asking me what do people think of argentina one guy said to me one day do people understand that this is not una republica bananera which is their word for a banana republic. <laughs> and, uh,
2: you know, so, so all of that was part of the story, really. Maradona continues to fascinate people. There's a movie this summer, um, this year, I should say, by Asif Kapadia called Diego Maradona. And we interviewed Kapadia about that on the podcast. And one of the things he said, we talked about the claustrophobic nature of the fame that Maradona enjoyed. I don't know if you can remember getting a sense of that while you were there. The phrase that Kapadia used actually was that he was squashed by love, is what Kapadia said.
5: Yeah, I mean, he, he was one of those people who couldn't go out on the street, obviously. Um, and then if he was in a restaurant, um, he, he would be mobbed. So that everywhere he went, he was mobbed. He found that particularly difficult, I think, in Italy, where the c- cities were smaller, where there were f- fewer, fewer and fewer restaurants. Buenos Aires is a big, big city, so it's easy enough to get lost in it. It's not as easy to get lost in Naples.
2: Yeah. So what did you come away with uh, with regards to Maradona? You said yourself you are going into it without a particular interest in the football side of it. What did you leave Argentina? Oh, with? I think there are a few things. One is that the fame he found very difficult to handle. But the second one is, I think there's a, um,
5: I mean, unlike the, you know, the footballers have a sort of limited period where they're bus- they're so busy training, so busy getting ready for the next game that these things don't tend to matter. But when you're you're slacking off when, when, the, when the time is up, as it were, it becomes much more difficult to handle because you're depending much more on your friends, on your social life, and he had no ballast. He had no anchor for that. He had, he had no world of his own.
2: The hangers-on were complete nuisances. Well, from one polarising figure column to another, Eamon Dunphy, is it true that you acted as Eamon Dunphy's unofficial bodyguard at Italia 90? Angus Fanning, <laughs> who was the editor of the Sunday Independent,
5: <laughs> sent me a message when I was in Palermo in 1990 and I was covering the World Cup I, I was covering it for the Sunday Indo as a sort of colour writer you know what the fans were doing what was going on what the places were like I, I, you know it's, it's a it's a funny job because you have to write only one piece a week but you have to be really alert that one piece a week has to sort of follow on the wave of what the other stories are saying and that you, you have to be really alert you, you couldn't just write it a week before How did you actually follow what was
1: in the papers in Ireland when you're out in
5: Italy um, in 1990? You would phone. I mean, you would just phone to say what's going on. I mean, it, it's really funny how much information you can actually get despite the fact there's no internet. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but but perhaps one of the times when I phoned, someone said, Angus really needs to talk to you. So eventually I got on, um, Angus came on the phone and said, come, you're not to leave Eamon Dunphy. He's coming out to Palermo. He's been reporting on the TV. As you know, he has said various things on the TV that didn't really make him very popular in the country. And, you know, there's a big movement against him. He's coming out to Palermo. He wants to go to the game, wants to see an actual game. You are the only guy we have there. Don't ever leave him on his own. I said, Angus, 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 I am a wimp. I'm a well-known wimp. I'm I'm a homosexual. Like, I, I, I... well, do, you know, like what do you want me to do? Like stand and, and push back the waves of, 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 of fans seething with rage. You know? like I will run. If anyone comes after us, I'm going to run. And I'm going to run fast. No, I said, no, 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 no. I want you to stay with him. I want you to be with him at all times. Never leave his side. I said, but what if we... I didn't think we would get attacked, by the way. I thought this was exaggerated. I mean, I had watched the fans. There, there was an extraordinary movement at the time for Irish fans to be so polite so good yeah. the nearest thing to problems was they played a bower on which the Italian police wonder what it was um, but you know I didn't think there would be any problem but Angus was absolutely you know, once he started on he was never going to stop you I love your pieces you're doing really well we love what you're writing but you know the butt was great meaning you're entirely unnecessary we don't care about you it's Eamon we care about because he was the star precious, ca- precious
2: right? cargo yeah, yeah. Yes, it comes So, to
3: you, so that you must you know sacrifice Sacrifice yourself on
5: that. Oh yeah! Oh
3: yeah! Yeah, it was going to be blood
5: sacrifice for the (laughs) sake of their star reporter. And uh, so I mean, I thought this was desperately funny, and uh, I kept watching. Like, what will I do if they come this side? (laughs) I'll run this way. And of course, you didn't have a mobile phone, so what you do is like scream at the top of your voice, "Police! Police!" or something. (laughs) But anyway, yeah, Angus was. um, I mean, he was absolutely. He wouldn't. You know, he, he wouldn't put down the phone. He was no, no. I want you to agree that you will never leave Eamon Dunphy alone (laughs) when he's in Palermo.
2: Well, you say that you didn't think anything was going to happen, you weren't taking it too seriously, but I've read up on his account of this time in his book, The Rocky Road, and he talks about the walk up to the stadium in Palermo. It was a Dutch game, right? The, the yeah, Netherlands. Yeah. Um, the chant began, if you hate effing Dunphy, clap your hands. Suddenly we were surrounded by hundreds of men and women wearing the green, chanting feverishly, pushing ever closer. The potential for something nasty hung in the air on the final stretch of road between us and the stadium. The two columns, I think it was Colin McCarthy, the economist that you guys have bumped into him, were shocked. I was too. This wasn't the Irish way. Ah, yeah, but it was. So the way the uh, way Dunphy describes it anything. sounds no, pretty they hairy. Did, they, they did shout that, all right, yeah, David Dunphy. But
5: um, there was no question of anyone running to punch him. I mean, it really wasn't like that. At least in my memory, it wasn't like that. But I might have been so interested in running. <laughs> that I didn't even notice the threat uh, you know I was always watching for a way out uh, I, I mean for me uh, so I mean if
2: Angus had even found that out it would have been was, uh, <laughs> you were at the famous press conference
5: y- yeah um, the, this is the
2: one where Amos a question I mean I'm Jack. Really, refi- I, Jack refused better explain it in case people have forgotten Jack refuses to answer the question since so says you're not a proper journalist and all hell breaks loose and he walks out in the end Eamon wasn't interested in causing
5: that controversy, you know, he really, really, I had found us various restaurants, because that's how I knew him in Dublin, we went out and went to restaurants, so I thought he would like various places in Palermo, he had no interest whatsoever in eating or drinking, he was intent on this business of how the team was playing and what Jack was doing, and he, and he really wanted to tease it out and have an argument about it. Um, I get into Jack's book as the, as as a little man in a green shirt. <laughs> I don't think I'm that little, but I, I married to Jack, I suppose I was. And um I did go with him, and, you know, Jack wasn't going to listen to his question. And what happened was the press conference, actually broke up because Jack said, well, there's no point in doing this. And he he walked out. Now, for Eamon, it was possible to keep doing this. He could have gone on. He could have done it, you know, the next day. He could have done it. He could have done it the next week. And he decided not to. He decided that that if he did this, I think he got no credit for that. You know, there's just deciding this could become an enormous circus. And that the only way to do it is to stop it. And the only way to stop it is not to go to any more press
2: conferences. So he decided not to go to any more press well, conferences. But his account is also that the Irish journalists didn't stand up for him. And the English did. Ian Ridley, I believe, was, led the English charge there.
5: You, you see, for the Irish journalists, he was the story. So there was no question of standing up for him. Since, you know, he, they, they, they were writing about him, what he had actually said, what he was doing in Palermo. So there was no question of anyone. And we weren't, whatever way he functioned as a journalist, he was a loner. And um, so he didn't have a group. He didn't have a peer group within sports journalists. Yeah. He didn't like any of them. And, <laughs> and I think the feeling was mutual. And so it was sort of fun being with him because it was, you know, there's two of us alone against the
3: world, although I had no dog in that fight. Yeah, mm-hmm. Talking uh, you've already made clear your willingness to sacrifice and if required. Oh, yeah, well, uh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's um, the two of you against the world unless the world came at. The both of you, in which case yeah, it was aiming against. And I work. would lock myself in the bathroom of some pub. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and was the, did this like take the form of sitting around listening to to Dunphy theorising about football? I mean, yes. Yeah. Yeah.
5: How, yeah, 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 how was that for you? you it was amazing because he was so passionate and he was so he was so serious about it. It was the most serious thing in the whole world. And um, and no, we didn't talk about anything. I mean, I didn't talk at all. I think, um, <laughs> but we, we, he didn't talk about anything else for those days until he went home.
1: Did that come up at all? Like, you know, the question of why is this so important to you? No. No, no because, because it just was It wasn't. obviously was. So it just was wasn't. I thing.
5: mean, it was, it was the burning business of, of the time, how that team played. Yeah. And he had very strong views about it as a journalist.
1: And did any of that rub off on you? Did you no. begin to go, oh, I see. Uh, the, no, the no, I was, just, I was just listening
5: and watching and um, I was trying to entice him into some nice restaurant, but it wasn't to be done. <laughs> <laughs> that so
2: some, the, yeah.
3: Sorry, Un. That, that was the start of the whole sort of best fans in the world Shtick, you know, that, you know, we keep uh, reiterating every time we qualify for these major tournaments now that, you know, we behave better than anyone else and we bring so much colour and, you know, happiness to the world every time we qualify for these tournaments. It it did sound like, well, particularly, say, if you were there watching it through the eyes of Eamon Dunphy, that maybe you didn't recognise that when people started talking about the Irish fans like that.
5: Yeah, well, I reported on it and it was true. You know, in other words, it was a simple matter. That there was an extraordinary sense of good humour, decency, um, uh, people were having a really good time. Um, and it wasn't true with other fans. I mean, I mean uh, um, in. Cagliari and uh, with, with the British, I mean, I mean, the English, the English were, I mean, there, there was not a, just a threat of violence, but the minute they saw police, they thought, great, we're going to have, um, actually fight with them. And the Irish just didn't do that. And there was an extraordinary sense of that everywhere you went, of people proud of that and, and, and making sure that that was maintained. So
2: oddly enough, that story was true. Mm. I've got an exchange from that press conference in front of me here, Colm. You're, you, uh, you as a little man with the green shirt were involved Jack says to Dumpy you're not a proper journalist you're just here to make trouble I'm not taking any questions from you then call him Tobin I'll ask the questions for him Jack no you won't you're just a mate I don't remember that <laughs> <Did> <laughs> I do that that was the bravest thing I've ever done <laughs> yeah you did have to, yeah, so you did yeah. so it yeah. for
5: Amy um, Dumpy but, that. but uh,
2: yeah well, that would have been a good idea then I, I would have been the proxy yeah as somebody with no interest in football then did it in any way change your view on the game or was it simply just a moment in time that you enjoyed, as you've described this? Um, the, um, the,
5: the game in Genoa was um, absolutely wonderful. It was a really wonderful occasion, the game against Romania, um, part, partly because the Italians had won a match that evening as well. So the Irish and the Italians began to run around in fountains and you know, cheer and exchange jerseys. But the game itself, I mean, I, I was at that time sitting, I was, for some reason, I, there was a big man a big belly man from the FAI, and um, he was beside me. And we hadn't really spoken much, but when the penalty shootout happened... And when it was clear we won i mean the, the i mean i jumped up on top of him i mean i ba- i banged my fist against his belly you know i mean i i it was an amazing episode and it was to do with sport i mean it was to do with oh my god this this is the brave you know this penalty shootout thing was so tense and that was that was an amazing evening um the i mean the event in rome was funnier um where i was staying in a hotel and when i was going out um the, the receptionist, uh, I just said, I was going to the match, and he said, um, ah, in that sort of Italian way of, you know, when it's just something that he wants to patronize, ah, he said, Irlanda, bella squadrina, meaning Ireland, a great little team. <laughs> <laughs> so I sort of knew that our chances were. Yeah. And at that match, I was sitting beside Jim Mitchell, who was a minister, in the, who had been a minister and was sort of later a minister in the Fine Gael government, and he just kept shouting, he never shouted anything else, but he shouted nonstop, watch Scalacci. <laughs> and he just said, watch Scalacci. And, and then he would say it again, watch Scalacci. The, um, the government came over on the jet. Yeah. And mm-hmm. there was a party in either... The, it was either the um, Irish embassy or the... Uh, I mean, the Italian, the Irish um, a, a ambassador to Italy, or to the Vatican. In either either case, it was a party and it was a nice house. And Charlie came in, and he had an entourage with him. And um, I, I'd been writing really mean pieces about him in the Sunday Indo. What kind of things did you say about just, him? He, um, just... Just going through some speech he made and making fun of him and policies, and no, it was, it was just a serious piece every week yeah. against Charlie, <laughs> and it was needed at the time, and um, uh, um, but I hadn't seen him for ages, and uh, Tommy Gorman brought him over, and he looked at me very steely, and I uh, looked at him, I couldn't think what to say at all, it was awful. It's that idea, you've been writing about him as though he didn't exist, and here he was now, mm-hmm. and... Um, so the ambassador came over, and I said, it was Robin Fogarty, and I said, isn't it great the style we have these guys living in? Just thought it would be a bit of banter to start yeah. the conversation. Yeah. Charlie wasn't having it for a moment. I mean, he just wasn't having being spoken to like that by me so he looked at me and said It's um, a very fine building um, and some of our embassy buildings are very fine buildings the one in Paris is one of the finest buildings in that city and that's saying a great deal and I was responsible for the purchasing of that building and when I did that I was under attack in exactly in the same way as I'm being attacked by you. And <laughs> that put me in my place. <laughs> Did the yeah, conversation go on much further? Yeah, he just walked off at that point. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
2: incredible stuff. Well, uh, people say politicians know nothing about football, but watch Scalacci is the best advice. Ah, uh, uh, yeah, it was very If good. only we had watched Scalacci, I thought, it would have been an semi-final. I always semifinal. thought Jim Mitchell was going to be T shock eventually, right, but it uh, <laughs> didn't, didn't happen. A... We'll take a quick break. More from the wonderful Column to Bean right after these. Cap and first cap and whatever. If you want to get in touch with us on what is the final episode of this series of Second Captain Saturday, please tweet at Second Captains or text 51551. Now, Colm Tobin, you have a new book out, Mad, Bad, Dangerous to Know, The Fathers of Wilde, Yates and Joyce. But one of the perils of writing a book is that you have to do some promotional interviews and one of those interviews has landed you in a spot of bother, I think it's fair to say. It was a Q&A you did in The Guardian and you were asked, which books do you feel are most overrated? This is your reply. I can't do thrillers and I can't do sp- spy novels I can't do any genre fiction books really none of them I just get bored with the prose I don't find any rhythm in it it's blank it's nothing it's like watching TV well this ruffles some feathers everyone from Stephen Fry to Marion Keys had a pop are you surprised by that reaction (laughs) ha 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 see I don't have Twitter Uh, So I didn't get the full brunt of it. Um,
5: Yeah, they took enormous offence and um, I mean, part of the lesson of it is, um, you know, I was in Los Angeles, it was about eight o'clock in the morning, I did it on the phone and that phrase, it's nothing, I was talking about, for me, it's nothing. Obviously, if I'd written it, Mm. I would have been able to say, I don't read this stuff in the same way as you don't read other stuff, get over it. But there was a great, someone, a great friend, a really good friend, decided that I should see some of the Twitter material. And there was one that was really so great. It was a girl called Kira. Kira, I I know your second name. You're out there somewhere. But Kira just... I could imagine her just late at night with her computer just saying, I can't be doing with that column Tobin. I thought that was great, you know, it's her contribution to world civilization. Just another stone, you know, late at night. Like, just a great thing to do. I wish I had, I, I, I was trying to get onto Twitter, but I couldn't work out the technology of it. But yeah. When well,
2: it was in the Irish Times, <laughs> you, people you, feel great. The Irish Times, the Irish Times uh, also, which you could certainly have read, um, had an article where they lined up Writer after writer, seven yeah. of them in total. You
5: see, it appeared in the Guardian and no one noticed it. And then the Irish Times bought it on the syndicate and they, they were going to publish it. And Martin Doyle quite rightly thought, oh my God, this little bit here is interesting. Let's phone all these poor crime writers and see how they feel. Because obviously they're very sensitive souls because, you know, they write this cr- crime stuff. And um, they always have the last <laughs> laugh in the sense because they're the ones whose books sell. I mean, okay. nobody buys my books. And um everyone's always buying crime and saying you should read this new crime book. So um but they're obviously very sensitive. They're alone in a room and uh they all got really, really, really upset.
2: Snobbery I couldn't stop laughing. Snobbery and intellectual arrogance. Those were the, the oh, main It's yeah. time for Sheila Fanning says it's time for people like call him to step outside the hallowed halls of academia and widen his horizons. Oh yeah. Well, I went to the World Cup and we got not good <laughs> enough.
1: <laughs> well, you said you you were looking at the uh Twitter responses, or some of them? No, a fr- I just saw pages, just a friend you. thought I should see some of them, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, did you find yourself morbidly drawn to this? Um,
5: yeah, if I'd, ha- if I'd had um, Twitter, if, if I knew how to get Twitter up, I probably late at night would have gone on and spent it the whole evening, and I would now be a wreck. I'd yeah. now be telling you some of the things said were very offensive. I feel I would have to apologise to the Irish nation oh, yeah. for my insensitivity. You know, I'd have to do all that, but since I didn't read it, uh, then I don't have you to. You could all go that.
3: on anonymously as uh, you know, sort of contour being super fan. I think yeah. that rarely works
1: out well. For the
0: yeah, no, no, you usually no. get
3: rumbled. Is the that is? The yeah, no, I didn't. I didn't. I, I decided not
5: to do that. But anyway, it was very. It was great. It lasted for about. Thirteen hours, fourteen hours, and then it was over. And you haven't been pushed to read crime since? Um, no, no. But um, someone told me that George Simenon is very good and Raymond Chandler. So maybe I should read those, but it'll take time
1: because I've got other things to do. Uh, you you also uh, slagged off TV in the same interview, but nobody uh, complained about that. Maybe because you were so obviously wrong <laughs> uh, about uh, you know. I, I I did wonder why do, do you when you look at uh, obviously people are watching a lot of really long TV programs now. Well, maybe not, obviously, you say you don't watch it. Uh, but, you know, 10 hours, 12 hours, 13 hours is, is now quite a standard, I guess. Um, what do you think about the amount of time that people are sinking into this? Do you, do you view it as a waste of time? Is this, like a, is this a medium which is not really serious in your eyes? I, I don't think i would want to make any comment about what other
5: people do. I just couldn't be bothered. And uh, I tried to, I mean, uh, people went on so much about this wire thing. I tried to watch it, but I couldn't understand what they were saying. And I couldn't see any drama in it. I couldn't see anything in it. It was so slow, so strange. I didn't watch much of it, mm. but so it's just not for me. I mean, it's just, I mean, I like to watch the news. I like, you know, I like the news. But um, after, I mean, the idea of nine o'clock in the evening, turning on the TV and sitting for
1: ages watching it, it's just not for me, I just I just couldn't do it. Yeah, you said you can't, you, you can't find any rhythm in it.
5: Oh, I was talking, no, I was talking about, um, a crime book, that I just couldn't find something that I need in a novel to get me going, which is a sort of um, underlying rhythm in the prose that holds you emotionally. It just doesn't do that for me. It probably does it for Sheila Flanagan. And, you know, it's great that she's reading crime.
1: So what is that, though, when you talk about rhythm? I mean, what does that
5: really really mean? I think it's the basic thing when you're writing, that um, you're not merely giving information. And um, that underneath the sentences, in between them, in between the words, in the way the sentences are placed there, there's a sound, there's a melody, there, there's, there, there's, there's something that holds you emotionally, which is not the information being given in the actual you know, words with their dictionary meaning. In other words, that just say the words have a soul as well as a body. In other words, the body will be the information, but the soul will be the sound. The soul will be something as in the way the words hit against each other. So when you talk about someone who writes well, you're talking about that idea of something in the rhythm being there that can hold you. And obviously it happens for some people and not others. It, 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 it's strange because it can happen in a translation mm. as much as in an original. So, so you know, it, it's very, very hard to pinpoint. And it may be that something in your DNA gets stirred or gets um, hit emotionally by something on the page. And it's entirely personal. In other words, some book um, that, that's a, that's a, let's say that's a crime novel or a chicklit novel, say, e- even though those categories are very, very hard to be sure about. But just say, um, could hit somebody emotionally, and and wouldn't hit somebody else, including me. So it just depends on you as the reader. But it's absolutely essential. If it isn't there, then you get nothing at all from the page.
1: So is it something to do with? Um you know, as you well, what what you're saying it sounds as though it's got something to do with the with the language, with the words, with the way they sound, with the way they sound together. Um, but if it's also if you also sometimes find it in translations, which are a whole different set of words, I guess. Uh, you see, if the translator is very
5: good, the, the translator wo- actually is actually building on that idea as well. You see, it's very close to
1: music. The, where- for, the form or the meaning. I mean, you know, in, in the sense, of, is, it, is it something? Is it is it what the words are saying, or kind of how they're saying it that you're. I don't know if I'm saying it this very sense. well. It's how they're saying it.
5: it it's, it's the second of those. In, in other words, it's how the sentence is constructed. It's how the sounds and sound in the sentence goes. And it's very close to music. It's very close to something in a song where it the, where the, isn't the lyrics that matter. It's something or other to do, perhaps with the percussion, perhaps with the way a word is particularly sung. You find it in Bob Dylan sometimes where the line is pretty banal, but the way he snarls it out is somehow it gets you emotionally.
1: Hmm. So it's so it's something to do with music and prose. Do you are you a fan of hip hop?
5: No. Uh, no, no, it's not for me, no. Just no. because of the
1: prominence of the rhythm and
5: Yeah. The, the- yeah, obviously um hip hop will hit people in that way because of percussion. I presume you're talking about the idea of
1: sound. You mentioned also, when you, when you were talking earlier about Twitter, have you never been tempted to, to go on? I mean, you you'd probably do pretty well. You're good, good at zingers. and Good at zingers. Well, tempted to what? To go on Twitter and sort of sound off a little bit, you know, to um, speak your brains. Yeah, I just
5: think that that might not be what's particularly needed at the moment. It's my <laughs> my <laughs> nightly intervention in the national debate. So, uh, using what, 14 words, is it? 280
1: characters. Yeah,
5: 280 characters. I just feel that that's not what's essential at the moment um, yeah. in,
1: in Irish life. Do you think? What do you think about the effect that it's having on the way uh, on, on sort of the language that people use? I mean, you know, it's it's an it's a big change. this. Ah, yeah. like I was mean,
5: absolutely marvellous that Tony Blair thought "LOL" was was lots of
1: love, loyal orange love. And uh, yeah, I thought that was great. <laughs> um, but do you? I mean, in in the sense that for the first time, really ever, people have the opportunity to be writers as much as readers. I mean, I guess everybody does, but everybody also has the opportunity to publish w- their own writing. And I guess people do as much writing as reading now, or possibly more. Um, I mean, what do you think of... What I, do you think, think, I think, I think as a writer, you have to win readers, and you have to put a lot of effort in.
5: And if you don't put that effort in, you don't get the readers. So you can be all night going on with, what, 200... How many characters? 280. 280 characters through the night. I mean, that Kira. Um, with her, I couldn't be doing with. You know, she's not going to get a big audience for that. I mean, somebody might see it and might sort of say, "Oh, all right, how's, how, how true, how right she is," but uh, <laughs> nothing more will happen. And you know, I was able to fade from memory. Yeah, and um, so yeah, all this is going on. But in order to win an audience, I think someone like Stephen Fry has done that, hasn't he? Yeah. That he has a huge Twitter following, and so has so has um, Trump. Trump, you know, so that um, obviously, if you're if you've got something interesting to say
1: every day, but I, I don't think I do really. We have this phrase of the attention economy now, you know, and and kind of all of the big successful companies, Facebook, um, you know, Google, whatever. It's all kind of about catching your attention and sort of keeping it. You know, like the kind of scrolling infinity of like a social media feed. Maybe you don't if you don't if you haven't really
5: a scrolling
1: infinity well, like, of a social media feed. Did well, you just say that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean you can you can sit there all day just yeah. scrolling, 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 it never ends. It never ends. Well, and every, every everything you see is like maybe you follow these people or maybe the algorithm thinks who'd be interested in this. There's always something else. But the thing about it is there's all of these tiny little things, one after the other, which have no relation to each other. It's like really fragmented mm. reading experience. But it's incredibly addictive and And was it, three billion people spend most of the day doing it now. So how do you think something like a literary novel can compete with that? Like in the sense of it, this is like something that you spend a lot of time, focus a lot of attention on as compared to what people apparently seem to be interested in, which is just this infinite random tide of stuff.
5: Ah, yeah, it's, it's, not, um, it's, not in a good, it's not in a good place. It's not as though it's in a, its heroic phase. I mean, I imagine that the heroic phase of the novel was the period when, between Dickens and George Eliot, when, when somehow or other, just say in England alone, but it would, it would also be true um, in Germany um, and in France, that, that the, um, somehow or other the society was being remade courtesy of novelists, that the images that were coming most powerfully were coming from Trollope. Dickens and from George Eliot and indeed from Jane Austen Um, and that that made a difference to society. I think the whole idea of the women's movement and women's rights emerges slowly in the 19th century in the novel, that you start watching the world from a woman's perspective and see all this sense and sensibility emerging um, from Jane Austen onwards and, and that that actually matters in a way that I don't think a novel now could intervene um, in the way the society is processing itself or seeing itself or, um, you know, um, seeing even the future. I, I don't think the novel has that place now. Mm-hmm. So, so, so I think it's, it's a much weakened position um, novelists are in. And there's a strange melancholy about that and coming with that melancholy comes a certain sort of defenselessness. The novel is a defenceless thing. It doesn't have defences. It, 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 has, it has no reason to be particularly proud of itself. Mm. And so um, you get some strange melancholy power in a novel now that you didn't get before, can which you, might make a difference.
1: Can you think of the last one that occurs to you that, that May, maybe made a difference in the way that you're talking about? Yeah, I think somebody like Marilyn Robinson in the United States, who's written,
5: I think, four novels. The first is Housekeeping, the most recent is Lila, and the other two are called Home and Gilead, that she has been writing about the parts of America, no one else, the, the, the sort of flyover parts of America, and the idea of religion in those places in the 1950s. And they're, they're very delicate. She's almost the John McGahern of that world and uh, which is having a great um, impact. Obama was a big reader of hers, and uh, anyone who reads her realizes this delicacy she's getting involved in, I mean delicacy about relations between characters, about memory, about desire, that that she's writing about this in a very delicate and truthful and difficult way. And it's not as though she has Huge numbers of readers, but but there is that delicate melancholy power in those books.
2: I think which we got in Ireland with John McGahan's books. Okay, will you have your uh, column to be in book recommendations there for you for the weekend? We are getting close to the moment of truth here, column. When we rank your sporting <laughs> life, but first we have to ask: we haven't even touched on. A, do you play any sport? I play tennis. Tennis, okay.
5: Yeah. I'm 64. I'm still playing tennis.
2: Very good. And yeah. so, would you describe yourself as a sort of Rafael Nadal, Serena Williams power hitter, I'm or a more- bad player? <laughs> I, was going to say really Roger Fe- I was going to say Roger I, Federer Graceful. I was really bad when I was about 12 or 13 <laughs> and 14 was really bad
5: like, and I've never changed <laughs> yeah, my yeah, game yeah. I'm still really bad I play a dull, slow game no double faults. no winners I can't even place the ball I just hit it back all the time in a slow, methodical sort of way. I, I drive people nuts. I love a lot. I slow the game down a lot. I'm an absolute nightmare. I often win because the other person just gets so oh, bored. People must so you. Tedious. Yes, I am a tedious person.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I remember playing as a kid. And if you did that, if you, if you kept lobbing the ball up, people would just get annoyed they think you you can't play tennis that's right but then of course if you beat yeah, them and, Colum, you can, and you go through all your life doing that you yeah. know you don't any win friends on the, on the tennis court <laughs> so you've never had a double fall well that sounds pretty good to me Column Tobin you've been a fantastic guest but will you walk out of here with the ultimate prize Murph for the final time this series could you please rank this sporting life of Column Tobin you don't understand I could have had class
0: We don't have stars in this game Mr
2: Weaver what do you have
0: them? people like me I could have been a contender I could have been somebody.
3: Okay, Colin, it's time for me to run through your career sporting highlight and try and figure out the sports person that I feel you remind me most of to help me come to a satisfactory conclusion to this year's greatest non sports person sports person leaderboard. Your name belongs up in lights with so Packy Bonner, Gaza, Roger Mia and Lothar Matthias is one of the true heroes of Italian 90. Of course, the extraordinary run at length to which you went to protect Eamon Dunphy's neck from Irish fans in Palermo is the sporting highlight of a true patriot and being called a little man with a green shirt by Jack Charton in his autobiography is an epitaph to rank right up there with those of Robert Frost, F. Scott Fitzgerald or John Keats. Your relentless, grinding approach to tennis reminds me, meanwhile, of no one more than former Arsenal manager George Graham and his doughty, remorseless league-winning teams of the late 80s and early 90s. Boring, boring Arsenal was the chant from the terraces, but it got results, goddammit. <laughs> so where does this leave us? Well, it's not good enough for top spot, but it is Aww. good enough for 75 points and parity with your good friend, Katrina Crowe. Colm Tobin, ah. this has been your Sporting Life. Colm Tobin,
2: happy enough well, for that? Yeah, very proud, thank you. Excellent, <laughs> delighted. It's so good to have you in, appreciate it. A round of applause for our last guest of the series, Colm Tobin, thank you.
0: Come over to the window, my little dog. I'd like to try to read your poem I used to think I was some kind of gypsy boy Before I let you take me home Now so long You know that I love to live with you But you make me forget so very much about it all. now, then why do I feel alone? I'm standing on a ledge, and you'll your fine spider web is fascinating. I see you've gone and changed your name again And just when I climb this hole
2: possible that song gets better every time I listen to it. It certainly seems to. That's especially for a birthday girl listening to Orti in Buenos Aires today. It's Marianne by Leonard Cohen for Marianne, Bargo, Maria and Seb in Argentina this morning. Now, if you want to listen back to any of the music on Second Captain Saturday, you'll find a full Spotify playlist of all the songs we played from Series 1 to Series 4. Just search Second Captain Saturday on Spotify. I must say, spending an hour in the company of Colm Tobin is... A nice way to spend a Saturday morning. <laughs> Not a fan of The Wire or hip hop music or Twitter, no. despite your or best television. efforts in. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Or TV Television. Yeah. Or television generally, yeah. I mean, you did try. But, uh, quite okay, a bit has written a new play called Pale Sister being staged at the Gate Theatre that's called Pale Sister previews begin on the 31st of October so go and take in a show if you get the chance I'm not sure the crime writers of Ireland will be flooding in to see that one but come on guys it's all a bit of fun <laughs> everyone everyone is getting publicity out of it Colm's heroic shielding of Eamon Dunphy from those crazed Irish fans or not very crazed Irish fans in Palermo is not quite enough to trouble the top of the leaderboard and we have our 2019 champion come we on. do
3: one we do the second happens roll of Honor first, of course, in 2016 our champion was former gymnast Gabby Logan. In twenty seventeen it was Irish artist and swimming prodigy Darcy Cross. Last year's winner was wrestling non-parai. Ashling B currently <laughs> ripping it up on Channel 4 with her brilliant new series This Way Up, of course. But the 2019 series winner on 84 points is apartheid busting short leg fielder. Peter Hayne. Congratulations, Peter. This must be even better than that time Nelson Mandela said he'd never have gotten out of jail without your help.
2: <laughs> well, that was Peter Hayne there. It's all our final weekend. We haven't got much time left because we spent most of the show talking to Colum Tobin. Mm. Uh, you couldn't avoid the build-up in this morning's papers, though, even if you tried. I was looking through the Premier League coverage, and even that features some GAA talk. The Sheffield United centre-back John Egan, yeah. who plays the biggest game of his career today against Chelsea. He's the son of the great Kerry footballer of the same name, the late John Egan senior the silky inside forward of the famous Kerry team back in the day, who won six All-Irelands, but he was captain on the day they lost their five-in-a-row bid to Offaly in 1982. And John Jr. says he didn't like it much when you brought that up. If you wanted to annoy him, you could bring it up. It's amazing. You can win six All-Irelands, and the one you think about the most is the one that got away. Funny how sport works.
3: Yeah, and that's the lesson for Dublin as well, that uh, this final will be their defining moment. I mean, if they win, yes. But certainly, if they lose, because of all the great teams that, the, of all the great games that that great uh, Kerry team won, like they won an All Ireland final against the then reigning champions Dublin in 1978, five eleven to nine points. But they're still remembered for the '82 final. Like that in itself is kind of scary and wrong. <laughs> the to win, is. Okay, Right. Well, yes. Thank you.
2: (laughs) Right, that's it. That's the end of this series of Second Captain Saturday. We want to thank everyone listening right now and everyone at RTE for giving us such a warm welcome over the summer. We've loved spending Saturday mornings with you and thank you so much for all your texts, tweets, emails in the last couple of months. If you want more Second Captains in your life, we broadcast daily podcasts on sport, culture, politics and more over on secondcaptains.com. So please have a listen to our two free-to-air shows on Mondays or to our commercial free member led shows during the rest of the week and if you're on your way to Electric Picnic today you don't even have to wait until Monday you can simply drop into the ah Here podcast stage in the Mindfield area to hear Paul O'Connell in conversation with our own Richie Sadler that's at 1.15pm we'll be back on RT Radio 1 with a Christmas special sorry for even mentioning the C word my producer told me to flag that so we will chat thank to you. you then thanks to Mark Morgan and Simon Hick for producing the show Killian Down for researching Tom Norton who is on sound today thanks Murph thanks Ken thank, thank you all thank, thank you Ken you thanks for listening most importantly and we'll chat to you soon.